0: Good morning um, or good afternoon. Yeah, it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 21 this morning. Uh, we will return to Luke 19 and 20, but I hope as we read it, it'll be obvious to you why uh, we feel that like this chapter would be a really good chapter to spend a bit of time in this morning. It's really about how we live in uncertain times and how we live at times of crisis and upheaval and difficulty and we thought with all of that's going on it would be great to hear Jesus speak into that rather than just us doing it Um, and so we're going to be in Luke 21 and it's, it's also as well as being a thing about a time of crisis it's also probably the most misunderstood chapter in the gospel so I just want to introduce it a little bit by saying what I think it is about and what I think it's not about so that we can read it with benefit for ourselves in our circumstances at the moment. Because as we begin to read it, you'll you'll probably quickly notice that it's the sort of language, the sort of chapter that a lot of people in the world today would read as if it was about the end of the world. And in many ways, I think the point of it is it's not the end of the world. Um, But we'll see that as we go. But I think a lot of people, based on a chapter like this, would write books like these, where it's all about the, the war in the Middle East, and it's all about nuclear apocalypse, and it's all about blood moons, and it's all about America... And it's basically all about our generation. But by and large, that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus is basically talking, most of it, if not all of it, is talking to a specific event that happened in the first century in Israel, which was immensely important for Jesus and his generation. But many of us might not feel directly affected by it, so we might not notice how much of it is focused on one event. And so what the story goes like this... Jesus dies and is raised from the dead in about A.D. 30, and in A.D. 66, there is a war, between a rebellion really, a Jewish rebellion against Roman rule that lasts seven years, between 66 and 73. So 35 years after Jesus dies and is raised, there is what we call the Jewish war, the Jewish rebellion against Roman rule. It lasts seven years. In the end of it, Israel is crushed by Rome. As if you know your history, the Roman Empire lasts much longer. But in AD 70, so 40 years after the resurrection, something absolutely cataclysmic, disastrous happens to the nation of Israel, which is that their temple is, uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Roman armies under the general Titus, and the Romans invade the city, they destroy the city, and they destroy the temple, raise it to the ground, and from that day on, the temple in Jerusalem and animal sacrifices in Judaism stop happening. From that day until the present day. So to this day, if you have Jewish friends, as many of us do, Jewish people still do not offer animal sacrifices because of the events Jesus is going to talk about in this chapter. So for nearly 2,000 years, Israel has been without a temple. It used to look like this. I mean, obviously, that's not a photo, although it looks like one, because um, we didn't have cameras back then. But this is roughly what it would have looked like then. Today, it looks like this. Right? So the, that's the same, effectively taken from roughly the same place. And, of course, that is the Dome of the Rock Mosque, which now sits on top. That was built another 600 years later. But it was all as a result of the events Jesus is about to prophesy. So for us, it's distant history, but for him, it's 40 years in the future. And he's speaking into it to reassure his followers how they should respond with a cataclysmic, disastrous event that will happen in their own lifetimes. And in in Israel's case, this is like 9-11 plus, 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 plus. Because it's not just a political crisis, their city falls, it's also a religious crisis because the temple stops functioning as a place where people can worship. And we know that that's what Jesus is talking about because, his, and in other words, his focus is on this, because that's what the disciples are asking about in the conversation, and that's what Jesus actually describes, as we'll see when we read the phrases, and it's also exactly what actually happened. If you read up the history, Jesus' prophetic words on the subject were spot on. And that's kind of what you'd expect, him being the son of God and everything. And so it can be a confusing passage because sometimes people read it as if it's the end of the world. But that's not really its focus. And I personally think all of it is about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And almost all interpreters would say that's basically what it's almost all about anyway. But I think that's got a lot to teach us about how to live in an uncertain and difficult and challenging time in our generation as well. So we thought it would be good to read Luke chapter 21. And beginning at verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said... As for these things that you see, the day will come when there won't be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said to them, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm he. And the time is at hand. Don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified. For these things must first take place but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they'll lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there'll be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, just to make a comment there, just briefly, the phrase about the Son of Man coming on the clouds is a phrase that makes some people think, well, this is re- referring to the, the, the end of the world. But I, I actually don't think that is what it means, because in Daniel chapter 7, which is where that phrase comes from, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, Jesus is coming on the clouds into the heavenly throne room to receive the kingdom, not coming from the heavenly throne room to earth to return. So I think even that phrase, coming on the clouds of heaven, is actually talking about Jesus approaching the ancient of days and receiving the kingdom by his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorious vindication. So that just, hopefully that'll help you understand how I'm reading it. Verse 29, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see those things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation won't pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man and every day he was teaching in the temple but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him this is the word of god so the the focus of this passage jesus is speaking about the destruction of jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 which happened a long time back and in Almost any other week of the year, it might be we might be sitting here thinking, Well, what's that got to do with me? But probably as you and I are reading it, we're thinking, Well, this is Jesus speaking into a situation where everything seems to be up in the air and there's great uncertainty and fear and trouble. That's got an awful lot to say to me, and I think it's got a lot to teach us about how we live in an uncertain world with wars and rumors of wars and bushfires and floods and viruses and climate emergencies and financial crises. I think this is, this is the passage in which Jesus addresses those issues the most clearly in this gospel. And he knows that living in this world, surrounded by all the upheaval, while we wait for his return is unsettling and troubling, and it will frighten some people if we're not careful. So he gives his disciples three things to do and three things not to do, and then he gives them the reason why. He actually begins, really, by giving them three things that you shouldn't do, and then here's three things you should do instead, and then here's the reason why. It's interesting that as he begins, he starts by telling them what not to do, because he's facing the disciples. The disciples are very concerned. He's saying to them, listen, I know you're all admiring this temple, but trust me, within a generation, not one stone of this is going to be left on top of each other. Right? This thing's going to be trashed. And the disciples are shocked and very frightened because that means both that their city will have fallen and that the centerpiece of Judaism and the Jewish religion will also not be there. So how are we going to function? What's that going to mean for us? And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm going to start by telling you here's a few things you shouldn't do. Right? You shouldn't wander. Verse 8. See that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm he and the times that don't go after them. Right? There is a temptation at times of turbulence and unrest to wander off after other would-be saviors. That's what people often want to do in crisis, because they provide, times of upheaval provide a context for false saviors to gather power to themselves. This is actually, if you know the history of Germany in the 1930s, this is a big part of how they got there, Because you have a strong man steps in and says, I will fix it. There is a lot of upheaval, a lot of economic crisis. I will sort it out. And what Jesus knows, there is a temptation at any time of crisis for people to say, Oh, they'll save me. And it doesn't matter if that means that they're going to demand more of me than is appropriate for a worldly ruler. I'll do it because they'll fix it. And sometimes crises provide opportunities for people who promise to sort everything out or restore old glories or. Make America great again, or whatever it might be. I'm not talking about voting, then neither is Jesus. I mean, it is possible, I think, to vote for someone without going after them. And it's possible to go after someone without having voted for them as well. But Jesus is saying, do not give these people, these human leaders who would look to try and persuade you to follow them instead of Jesus, do not go after them. Do not give them too much allegiance that jeopardizes your allegiance to King Jesus. The only person who will get you through this storm is the king of history. And these other people will not. So don't go after them. So don't wander. Second thing he says is don't worry. That's another response that understandably a lot of people have. Some people say, I'm going to wander off and find a savior. Other people say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just very, very anxious and fearful about what is, what's the world coming to. And Jesus says here, and when you hear of wars... And tumults, don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So, what a lot of people do in a time of crisis is they do—they worry, slash, even panic. You, know, you can see it in the nation even now, can't you? People do worry, and Jesus says, "Don't do that either." Now, we'll talk. We'll get the big reason He gives for why we shouldn't and how we cannot worry comes towards the end. We'll look at that in a, in a few minutes. But for now, He's just saying, "You mustn't worry." Climate change becomes climate crisis, becomes climate emergency, becomes climate apocalypse. That's what happens. People, we worry. Now, by the way, there might be good reasons for responding very, and there are, for responding very directly to challenges like that. But the way people talk about it can produce anxiety and not just action. And that's where Jesus is saying, don't let your spirit be troubled by what's taking place. Don't be terrified. Things like this they have all, they've always happened, and they will continue to happen, and they will happen, but literally it's not the end of the world. That's what that last phrase is, isn't it? Right? He's, it? And that's why I said this, I don't think this text is primarily about the end of the world. It's really about reassuring people that in the midst of a massive crisis for them, it's not actually the end of the world. His other reason, as I say, not to fear, will come a bit later. So don't worry. And then thirdly, don't waste any time. Now, this one sounds like it's in conflict with the previous one, but it's actually very important. Jesus specifically tells them what will happen to their city. And he says, The moment, I don't want you to worry, but the moment will come when J- Jerusalem is surrounded by Roman legions. And when that happens, you need to flee, right? You need to take the steps you need to take to save your life and the life of your family. Right? When, Roman leg- this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That would be the origin of our expression, head for the hills, right? That's why we talk about it. So, What are you going to do? I'm going to head for the hills. Because this is taken from the worst kind of scenario that a Jewish person could possibly imagine. The Romans surrounding their city, invading, destroying, it, and finishing off the temple. And so he says, when that happens, don't waste any time. Don't go, no, it's all right. I'll, st- I'll fight them off on my own. You have me and just a few of my mates. We'll take on the Romans. Don't. They will kill you. Get out of there and save your families. And that's why he says, this will be a particularly difficult time for those who are vulnerable, which in this case, pregnant women, those nursing young babies, be really hard for them. Don't mess around. Don't wait. Don't waste time. Flee. So there's three things Jesus says when a crisis comes. Obviously, not all of these map directly into our situation. I'm not saying they do. I don't think London's suddenly going to be surrounded by foreign armies. Please don't mishear. I'm, I'm not trying to overapply it. But do you see that for Jesus in his generation, those steps, things you mustn't do, are very helpful for us to bear in mind when facing a different kind of challenge in our own generation. But Jesus then says, here's some things you should do instead. Right? Now, so no, you shouldn't wander and worry and waste any time but what you should do among other things is you should see this crisis as an opportunity to witness right verse 13 in particular this will be your opportunity to witness settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for i will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict now jesus is saying again in his generation i'm not saying it for us but Jesus is saying, the upheavals I'm talking about are going to turn to persecution. People are going to come after you as the church of Jesus Christ, he's saying, and you will be dragged before the courts and harangued in the streets and pilloried in the press. And you should see this as an opportunity to witness to King Jesus. Now, that kind of scenario is exactly how the early church grew. That was basically, the, if you read the book of Acts, a large part of their growth strategy was, to <laughs> day one, get persecuted, scatter all over the world, and as you do, tell people the good news, and you'll find you then get a hearing in front of governors and kings, and as you proclaim why you're on trial and what your defense is, people will hear the gospel. That's how the church grew in large part in Acts. And although I don't think that's the scenario that's probably not expecting us to get persecuted as the church in this country as a result of a virus or anything like that, But it is interesting that when times of crisis strike, it often produces bountiful opportunities to witness. Because people who don't have eternal hope ask questions that much of the rest of the time they don't ask. It's the same reason you can often preach the gospel at a funeral, because people begin to think, oh, hang on, the things that I normally put around myself to make myself feel safe and secure don't feel so steady anymore. What is my rock? Where is my hope built? Is it built on Jesus' blood and righteousness or sinking sand. And when people start asking that question, Jesus said, you have got to see this as an opportunity to witness. got the first thing you've got to do, to witness. Second thing you've got to do is you've got to wait. And particularly verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The image there is of confident expectation. Straighten up, raise your heads. I love the image. It reminds me so much of waiting for the number 12 bus. Because this is what everyone does, when on the, and probably many other buses as well. But I used to get the number 12 bus, and you've got those sort of the funny little sheltery bus stops with those seats that aren't really seats, but they just sort of make you lean forward like that. Kind of a bit random seats. I'm not sure whether they were badly designed, or there's probably a good reason for it. But you stand there like this, and everyone's sort of half-sitting. But there's a, there's a shop window over there, and the bus comes from the road down here. But you can't see the bus, but what you can see is the reflection of the bus in the shop window. So all the people who are new to the area or don't know the bus route before are just standing this just daydreaming, looking at the air. They don't know what they're doing. But all of the people who take this every day are looking at the window because they know that just before the bus comes, they'll see the window. And then as soon as the bus is visible in the window, they straighten up and they raise their heads for they know their redemption is drawing near. That's what we all do. Now, Jesus is saying, you've done it as well, right? This is benefits of being a Londoner. What Jesus is saying is, when you see these things, when you can see the reflection of the bus in the window, get ready because the redemption is about to come. And you should see these kind of upheavals as preparation for the day of freedom and deliverance for the whole of the earth that Jesus is going to bring. The other analogy he uses, sorry, the other, he doesn't use the bus stop analogy, that's me, but he uses an analogy for this in, in his own world, which would have made much more sense to them. He says, so look at the fig tree. In fact, then he says, look at all the trees. When you see the fig tree producing leaves, you know summer is coming. Now, I've actually had this in my own family in the last week because my little boy, Sam, who's in the kids' work right now, asked me this week, Dad, is summer really going to come? <laughs> right? Because I think he's just fed up, as we probably are, with a just rainy, rainy winds of Storm Kiara, Storm Dennis, Storm Edna, whoever's I don't know who's next, but he's going to go all the way through the alphabet, and he's just like... I think he's just too young to remember that summer comes every year. He doesn't know that yet. So he's like, Dad, is summer really gonna come? But also this week, we got a WhatsApp message around from my father-in-law. Now there's a tree that outside my parent, my in-laws' house, that blossoms at exactly the same time every year. And it's the wonderful harbinger of summer. As soon as it blossoms, no, 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 not that one. Sorry. Um, that's not a, that would be a very unimpressive tree. <laughs> but there's a blossom tree that, that flowers right in their front garden. And whenever it flowers, there's this sort of moment of little family WhatsApp celebration. Here it is. Summer's on the way. And he literally sent that message around a couple of days ago. So I thought, actually, just this week, I've had a question from a three-year-old saying, is summer really coming? And I've had a photo sent around the family saying, oh, here comes the proof that summer is nearly here. Now, When the blossom tree blossoms, everybody goes, summer's nearly here. I'm not wondering whether it's going to come this year. I'm not three, so I'm not going, is there really going to be summer this year? Or do you think it'll just go straight from spring into autumn? I go, no, summer's coming, it's great. And my hope has been fueled and reinforced by the sign of the blossoming tree. And Jesus is saying, when these upheavals happen, take it like that. Take it as a sign of the imminence of your redemption coming, of the kingdom of God coming back. You've got to be reminded, be shaken out of the kind of ordinary treadmill of life and go, hang on a second, these crises are happening. That's a reminder that the kingdom is to come, that redemption is on its way. And you've got to treat it as like a little object lesson for you in life that Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. Verse 31, so when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. And then third thing to do, you've got to watch. You've got to watch yourself. We've got to watch ourselves," he says, verse thirty-four. "But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Dissipation is another word for drunkenness, really. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap," he says. "You've got to watch yourself. You've got to pay attention to your own to your spiritual life. You've got to pay attention to your own behaviour, to your own attitudes." And if you don't, you will find that your heart gets weighed down and becomes sluggish through alcohol or the cares of this life. And I find that comparison very interesting. For some of us, it might well be alcohol. That's the temptation. Crisis going on, I'm just going to drink too much and try and switch off. And that's going to make you spiritually sluggish. But for many of us, it's probably not alcohol. It's probably the cares of this life are going to weigh you down. But it's interesting that they have the same effect on the soul. They weigh you down, you know. You ever drunk too much? You just feel too, feel, oh, sleep, oh, you don't want to do anything, just feel a bit sluggish and drowsy, yeah, and kind of just not quite on it, and you wouldn't want to drive a car and all that. He said, the cares of this life can do that to you too. And Faria spoke about this a couple of weeks back in Luke 17, yeah, good things, Jobs, marriages, children, careers, those things. But they can, if you're not careful, weigh you down and make you sleepy to the realities of kingdom. And you need to wake up and smell the coffee. You need to stay awake. Keep alert. Keep watch. Verse 36. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to happen and to stand before the Son of Man. So we live in an uncertain and often very challenging world. We don't have a temple that's about to get destroyed by the Romans with all the chaos and upheaval that caused, but we can probably relate to the mood of this chapter, I suspect. And into that situation, Jesus just gives us some really clear teaching. And you love the way Jesus talks. He doesn't dance around. He says, yeah, don't do these things. Do these things, right? Don't wander after would-be saviors. Don't worry. Don't waste any time when the critical moment comes. Instead, take the opportunity to witness, wait with confidence, watch yourselves. But in the midst of these do's and don'ts, he gives us the main reason why. And this is where, this is the beautiful bit of this chapter. This is the bit for me where the hope comes from. And the first time you read it, the reason why you can stand this way and not worry, the first time you read it, it reads like a total contradiction as if Jesus has just taken leave of his senses. But it's actually the key to living in an uncertain world. Right? See if you can spot the contradiction. It's not hard to see. Verse 16. Some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Sounds like a contradiction, right? So you're gonna, some of you are going to get killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. You find yourself thinking, do you not understand the word perish, or the word killed, or both? What on earth is happening here? But actually, that statement, as puzzling as it sounds, encapsulates Jesus' whole teaching on resurrection life. Because Jesus' teaching on resurrection life is, they are going to kill you, and you won't perish. Because that's what Jesus is going to do through the resurrection from the dead. They're going to kill you, and that death that you're going to experience, many of you, some of you, I don't know when my time comes, but when you do, it will simply function like a door into abundant, everlasting, indestructible life. And so they are going to kill you, and it's going to mean that none of you are going to perish. And you're going to gain gain your lives by endurance. It's another way of saying that marvelous line Paul wrote. Dying, behold, we live. It's another way of saying the line that we often quote at funerals in John 11: I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though they die. Right? Only Jesus. Only Christians can talk like that. Only Jesus can talk like that. No one else is saying that. Say, they will kill you, and that's the disaster to end all disasters. Because after that, there's nothing. And Jesus says, "No. They will kill you, and not a hair of your head will perish. They. This person will live, even though they die." Paul would say, "Dying." Behold, we live. Christians are dandelions. I love this flower. It's such a wonderful picture that God has put for us in creation of the way in which the Christian life ends. Now, this one is the dandelion, by the way. So, the puffball, right? Yeah, we'll put them both up. You know what they look like. But the puffball is incredibly fragile, right? You can pluck it. Like a child can pluck it. They walk through a gut and pick it up. I know we don't have a great many meadows in Lewisham, but in some parts of the world, there are these large expanses of grass and flowers grow in them sometimes. And, um, and a little puffball dandelion, you can pick it up like that and you can just blow, and then the spores just scatter every which way. They are incredibly fragile, incredibly vulnerable, and like the body that I've been given for this life, and so have you, they are very vulnerable to wind and rain. And persecutions and wars and tumults and rumors of wars and viruses and who knows what else. And they are they are instantly scattered. And there is a moment where, of course, they are always, they're all going to perish. But dying, behold, they live. And having been scattered, what they then do is they take root. But they don't take root like a puffball. They don't get a new version of that, ready to be scattered again and keep going round and round the cycle, like in reincarnation. No. No. They take root, and they become indestructible beasts of power with root systems that go down to the earth's core. Right? Have you ever tried to pluck up one of these things? like You have to build a house and get the diggers around in order to try and get this thing up. They, if you pull them up, you see them online. You sort of, when you put the entire root system, they go down to about here. They're unbelievably rooted. They are indestructible, and they make gardeners so angry that the word they use for it is a don de lion, which means tooth of the lion. Right? They're saying, this thing cannot be destroyed. It is so infuriating. And I'm looking at those flowers thinking, praise God that I'm now in a body like that. But one day I get a body like that. I've got roots in Christ. I can't be rooted by anything. They are gonna, some of you, they're going to kill you. But not a hair of your head is going to perish. You will be raised indestructible, incorruptible, eternally and glorious. And you don't need to fear anything because by endurance, you're going to gain your life. We are struck down, Paul says, but not destroyed. Right? Not a hair of your head will perish, even though they kill you. And it's that hope, it's the hope of the resurrection from the dead that keeps our feet secure in an uncertain world. That's what we have that most other people in this city don't have. It's the certain confidence of the resurrection of the body. And it grounds a lack of anxiety... Even as we make very wise, careful choices on behalf of ourselves, our families, and our neighbors and friends, we don't have to be ground down by worry or by panic because we know our resurrection is secure. Whoever believes in me shall live even though they die. So what I thought it would be good to do as we conclude, the band are going to come out, but we're going to stand and declare what Christians believe. And I just thought it would be a helpful thing to do because there's a whole lot of things that we don't know what's going to happen. But there are a bunch of things that Christians do know. And they're kind of bound up together in this wonderful text called the creed, the Nicene Creed, which we, if you were here at the time, we preached through a couple of years ago. And we're going to stand together, if that's you're able to stand, and just declare the things that we do know. Right? There's lots of stuff I'm not sure about. I don't know how it's going to go from here on. But I do know These things. I affirm these truths and on the basis of them I can stand with hope and confidence lifting up my head for my redemption is drawing near. Let's stand together if you can and let's declare the creeds. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen.